Welcome to Performance and Health. Performance and Health is a product of a mechanical engineer with a passion for human physiology and its relation to athletic performance and longevity. Although at the pointy end of things, these two goals clash with one another, there are still many similarities between the two and much to be learned from studying both of them. Athletes, both amateur and professional, must focus on their longevity to have a long career and be successful throughout it without compromising their ability to function well into later life. And someone looking to maximize their lifespan and health span must focus on their cardiovascular health and physical strength if they are to live a long and mobile life. If you are a regular listener and have not done so yet, please be sure to leave the podcast a rating and share it amongst your friends. And if you are new, well then, enjoy your first episode, which I hope to be the first of many for you. And with that, let's get into today's episode. Welcome back, one and all. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about coffee and simply whether it's good or bad for you where the kind of line can be drawn and what the possible benefits and side effects can be of this widely consumed beverage. Um, With that, coffee is one of the most popular and widely consumed beverages worldwide due to its stimulating effects on the central nervous system and its taste and aroma also lead to people being quite fanatical about it in some cases. I personally am a big fan of coffee and purchase kind of these single origin beans and spend time dialing in grind size and coffee to water ratios and so on and so forth and people go even further than I do so coffee has got a real cult following around it and in things like cycling and running there's a bit of a kind of culture around stopping off at locations have a nice coffee a cake and go on about your uh, business so In 2016 alone, uh, the production of raw coffee amounted to approximately 9.1 billion kilograms of coffee. And it's estimated that 2.25 billion cups of coffee are consumed each day worldwide. Uh, Coffee is a complex mixture of more than 800 volatile compounds where caffeine and chlorogenic acids are the most common compounds found. Uh, The view of coffee has progressively moved to a less and less uh, negative position on health over the years due to its better known pharmacology. But people still tend to bash it sometimes in the media and there's always an article floating around suggesting all the negative outcomes of this coffee that you're consuming. Uh, but for adults consuming moderate amounts of coffee, somewhere in around the three to four cup region, which equates to about 300 to 400 milligrams of caffeine per day, there's still little evidence of health risks and some evidence of health benefits and other benefits outside of general uh, health. So if this all sounds interesting, this is what we'll be diving into. And for a bit more detail before you wonder, oh, do I carry on? Are we going into the amounts of caffeine in different beverages such as coffee and tea and then how it compares to instant versions and other soft drinks Uh, the general uh, methods of action of coffee and how it works on the body and some kind of interesting facts and what the stimulating effects can result in Um, a list of kind of positive outcomes from things like all-cause mortality cardiovascular disease metabolic disease cancer and others Um, its effects on cognition and its effects on sleep and then some other kind of negative side effects that can be seen in coffee and large amounts of coffee consumptions and periods in your life that may mean that 
reducing the amount of coffee consumption or going to a decaf um, may be beneficial and what sort of times those are. So if this sounds of interest, let's go on with the episode. Before going any further, I'd like to get this disclaimer out of the way. Um, The content and materials featured or linked to in this podcast are for your information and education only and are not intended to address your particular personal requirements. Uh, The information does not constitute medical advice or recommendation and should not be considered as such. I'm not a medical professional and therefore not able to give medical advice. So let's start with getting some bits of general housekeeping kind of out of the way and how much caffeine is actually in certain drinks. So your standard cup of coffee brewed with like a drip method is going to be anywhere from 60 to 120 grams of caffeine the nominal kind of being about 85 instant's going to be slightly less uh, about 75 decaf is still going to have caffeine in it but we're talking like three uh, grams and then an espresso um, is going to contain about 40 grams ranging from about 30 to 50 this can vary obviously on the method of extraction how well extracted is how uh how long the shot is in this case it's referring to a 30 mil shot so you know kind of adjust that as you will for the amount of caffeine that uh, sorry the amount of coffee you would actually be brewing teas unlike what a lot of people may say uh, doesn't have caffeine or whatever a cup of tea can have anywhere from 25 to 110 milligrams of caffeine i may have mentioned grams earlier it meant to say milligrams um so it does still contain uh caffeine almost as much as coffee depending on which tea you're purchasing how long you're brewing it for but the kind of nominal amount will be about 60 milligrams um and then iced tea beverages could be anywhere from 9 to 50. Soft drinks like Coca-Cola are 360 or I think they're 330 mil. Um, can, nominal amounts about 40 milligrams. Energy drinks about 80. It's very common to see 250 mil cans of uh, uh, Red Bull to have about 75 milligrams of caffeine. Um, cocoa beverages like hot chocolate based things can be about 6 Um, chocolate milk can have five so these next numbers are kind of very insignificant for the most part but you can end up consuming caffeine and things that you didn't realize it's present in um, but to a very small case so energy drinks soft drinks teas and coffee tend to be your big hitters in the amount of caffeine that is present in them now most people kind of i guess generally understand how coffee is working but for a better understanding let's kind of dive into that now caffeine is completely absorbed by the stomach and the small intestine within about 45 minutes of oral ingestion uh, but will appear in the blood within minutes peaking somewhere between 30 and 120 minutes um, the hydrophobic properties of caffeine allow it um, for its passage through all biological membranes, including the blood-brain blood, blood brain barrier, which keeps certain things out. Uh, and the peak plasma concentration is reached within 15 to 20 minutes after oral ingestions in humans. 
Um, 95% of caffeine is then metabolized in the liver by various different enzymes, uh, while the average half-life of caffeine is generally reported to be between 4 and 6 hours. It does vary quite a bit between individuals uh, and even may range from 1.5 hours to 10 hours in, in adults, so a really wide range. And We'll get into later how this kind of impacts sleep, but it's something that needs to kind of be paid attention to when you're consuming this how long you feel the stimulating effects for uh, the wide range of uh, variability in caffeine metabolism is due to several factors uh, the rate of caffeine metabolism may be inhibited or decreased with pregnancy or the use of hormone or uh, contraceptives increased or induced by heavy caffeine use uh, cigarette smoking or modified in either direction by certain dietary factors and or variation in uh, the gene known as CYP1A2. Over 95% of caffeine is metabolized by CYP1A2 enzyme, which is uh, encoded by the CYP1A2 gene and is involved in the uh, demethylization of caffeine into primary metabolites uh, and, as stated before, metabolized in the liver. Uh, this gene will have a drastic effect on the caffeine sensitivity, uh, metabolism and response of an individual. So if you were super keen, you could find these kind of things out. But there, are, you can simply experiment at home roughly to understand. Especially if you're someone who's quite into coffee and weighs out beans and grinds them and then brews it. You can somewhat, I mean, you're, you're not going to know the exact amount of caffeine. But from there, you can start seeing that up. Uh, after 25 grams of coffee in one sitting, I do start to get jittery or I really feel the effects. Whereas 20, it's a much more uh, sort of moderate stimulation than if you know other people who are also into coffee and weigh out beans, you can sort of do a comparison. And like, For example, I know people who 13 to 15 is kind of their range and going up to 20 is kind of like absurd uh, in one sitting. Um, so yeah, you can kind of get a gauge from that. So from there, if we move on to what's actually going on with caffeine more specifically. So the principal mode of action of caffeine um, at doses in normal human consumption is as an agonist, oh sorry, an antagonist uh, of adenosine receptors, well, of adenosine itself. But to a nerve cell in the brain, uh, caffeine looks a lot like adenosine. Uh, and as a result, caffeine binds to the adenosine receptor. Uh, the w easy way to look at this is I like, imagine you've got a jigsaw puzzle and you've got two pieces that both fit physically the same uh, block or uh, the same other piece. But obviously one of them is the correct one and makes the image look as it should. And one of them is incorrect but still fits. That's effectively what is happening. Caffeine is able to bind and park itself in that same spot. Um, so... Unlike adenosine, caffeine doesn't slow down the cell's activity as adenosine would. As a result, the cell can no longer identify adenosine because caffeine is taking up all the receptors that adenosine would normally bind to. And instead of slowing down because of the adenosine effect, the nerve cells speed up. Uh, caffeine also causes the brain's blood vessels to constrict because it blocks adenosine's ability to dilate them. Caffeine's effect on the brain also induces increased neuron firing. Uh, the pituitary gland senses this activity and assumes some sort of emergency must be occurring. Uh, so it releases uh, epinephrine, 
a hormone that tells the adrenal glands to produce adrenaline. Adrenaline is the fight or flight hormone that you're probably um, aware of already and aware of its effects. And it has a number of effects that I'll now kind of go over. Uh, your pupils will often dilate. Uh, the airways open up. This is why people suffering from uh, severe asthma attacks are sometimes injected with epinephrine. Uh, your heart beats faster in response. Uh, the blood vessels on the surface constrict to slow blood flow from uh, cuts to increase blood flow to muscles. Uh, blood pressure rises, blood flow to the stomach slows, uh, the liver releases sugar into the bloodstream for extra energy, uh, muscles tighten up, ready for action. Um, and this explains why after consuming a big cup of coffee, your hands get cold, your muscles grow tense and you feel excited and your heart beats faster these are all kind of things because obviously our bodies have evolved outside of these kind of stimulants in a, in a way and they are seeing this this release of adrenaline as a sign that an emergency not just maybe that you've been cut but that you're about to fight something or you've seen a predator or some kind of competitor in your environment. And all these lists of effects are obviously lists that are going to be highly beneficial in an environment where you need to either fight or escape from a predator or a some kind of situation that requires, um, for lack of a better word, superhuman strength in a way is a kind of easy way to look at it. And caffeine stimulates all these effects and this is where some of the uh, cognitive boosts and physical improvements come from there are an awful long list awfully long list of benefits to caffeine um, all usually related to the amount that is consumed and for that reason i'm going to kind of go over the big hitters there may be others that you will have heard of or seen written anywhere um, some with more and some with less kind of evidence pointing towards them but uh, let's start with all cause mortality the kind of big one um so in a study by uh grosso uh, grosso sorry if i'm saying these names wrong but grosso and colleagues high coffee consumers in uh, the seven cups per day category have been shown to have as much as a 10 percent reduction in all-cause mortality however the largest benefit came from three cups a day where 70 percent reduction in all-cause mortality was seen and a four percent reduction came from just a single cup a day um, as someone who's a big fan of coffee, I am left wondering whether the type of dosage, um, the type and dosage, sorry, of the single coffee would make a difference. Uh, so, for example, I couldn't find necessarily whether the dosage of coffee was related to a volumetric amount or of fluid, whether it was a volumetric amount of, well, a uh, mass amount of bean. It was kind of unclear and anyone who's really into coffee understands that different beans and can vary drastically in how they taste. So I, I don't personally know whether there's a kind of drastic difference in how they, uh, how much caffeine they, they have inside them. And different extraction methods will result in different amounts of caffeine coming through. But I think generally you can see that these larger consumptions of coffee seem to have... Uh, improved outcomes and seems to drop off at a certain point uh, so it's kind of kind of unclear to some extent 
Uh, it also seems to have an effect on cardiovascular disease. Uh, coffee consumption has been uh, consistently associated with a lower risk of mortality from coronary heart disease, stroke and all-cause cardiovascular disease, again in a non-linear fashion. Uh, the largest drop in relative risk is seen at the three cups a day mark, same as all-cause mortality, uh, compared with non-drinkers. Risk were reduced by 19% for mortality and cardiovascular disease with a 16% for mortality from coronary heart disease and then a 30% for, for, uh, for mortality from stroke. At this level of intake being three cups a day. Uh, it then differs. There is also some evidence it may positively affect blood pressure, but this is yet to kind of be uh, reached in any sort of significance from any studies that I could find. I think it's a good time to mention that uh, I take most of these results with a slight pinch of salt. You may not uh, reach these numbers in risk reduction exactly, uh, but it's probably a fair to say around these points that as long as coffee isn't impacting your sleep, then it's likely having a positive effect on your overall health. Now we will get onto that as to what the kind of effects can be of sleep, but for now, just mainly focusing on the benefits. And so also these numbers have some kind of meaning. Exercise is considered the single greatest uh, behavioral, modifiable, however you want to put it, factor that impacts our health. Uh, being in the uh, going from a sedentary state to just above average in your VO2 max, which is a measurement effectively to keep it simple, a measurement of your uh, aerobic fitness, so your ability to do activities with uh, oxygen present slash in abundance. We're getting too deep into that, but simply the VO2 max metric, if you are above average in your um, age category, you will see a three times reduction, so a 300% reduction in uh, all-cause mortality. So it makes you see that caffeine is a, although 16% is a 19% is a number that most people probably wouldn't pass up on, but we're talking non uh, orders of magnitude smaller than exercise. So if you're starting to consume coffee and don't exercise and you're doing it because of the said health outcomes, there are other modifiable factors, aka exercise, that would be of greater uh, benefit to yourself. Coffee consumption uh, has also been consistently associated with a lower risk of type 2 diabetes for high versus low consumption, achieving a risk reduction of approximately 30%. A consumption of decaffeinated coffee also seemed to have similar associations uh, of comparable magnitude with uh, points toward caffeine not necessarily being the primary driver of health benefits seen. Um, for metabolic syndrome, high versus low coffee consumption was associated with a 9% lower risk. And I think that's an important thing to note as you kind of look through it more. Obviously, a lot of people associate coffee with caffeine, but it's not necessarily the caffeine that is causing the positive health uh, outcomes necessarily because things like decaf still seem to show benefits. Decaf, anyone, again, who's really sort of interested in different coffees and has tried decaf and looked into the process, there are various processes of doing it and you can lose various compounds through the different processes. Um 
and this could mean that not every decaf is made equally and as such why I am interested to know whether not every coffee is also uh, made equal. Um, then cancer, another big hitter. The, the risk of cancer also appears to reduce by as much as 13% in high coffee consumers with 2% coming from a single cup a day when compared to uh, non-consumption. Uh, the, the list of such cancers included uh, endometrial cancer, melanoma, oral cancer, leukemia, non-melanoma, skin cancer and liver cancer. Uh, for prostate, endometrial and melanoma and liver cancer again with a linear dose-related response. Um, some studies have put forward up to a 59% increase in lung cancer, so not ideal, uh, between non-coffee drinkers and high consumers. However, uh, in studies correcting for smoking, that risk drops to about 8 to 5, uh, well, sorry, that uh, percentage actually drops to about either an eight between an eight percent increased chance of uh, lung cancer to a five percent decrease so that's a big thing that you may see and a good thing to think about when you're looking through especially uh, studies that are observational which a lot of these studies tend to be is that in some cases these are and it's not malicious in any by any means sometimes it's the date of the study or it was overlooked to, in some cases and it wasn't adjusted for there can be external factors that could be causing this and again why I'm saying take some of these as a pinch of salt because when something's like a five percent um, reduction in safe or cause mortality it could be that this group of people studied happened to be say cyclists and they could have been just other factors such as exercise that could have been actually causing that in comparison to another sample study who didn't drink coffee because it's not part of their culture and their habits instead are uh, less healthy active habits. Just like cancer, one that people will be likely very interested in due to how uh, much of a kind of scary slash horrible way these this disease can be to die is uh, neurological outcomes such as Parkinson's disease. So coffee's uh, effect on neurological outcomes uh, has been shown to associated with a lower risk of Parkinson's disease even after adjustment for smoking. Decaffeinated coffee again maintained a lower risk for Parkinson's disease which did not reach um, significant in like studies. There was kind of a few pointing towards it but not, not many. Um, Consumption is reported to have a cons uh, consistent association with a lower risk of depression and cognitive disorders, especially for Alzheimer's disease, where as much as a twenty percent, a twenty-seven percent reduction can be seen within uh, certain studies. Now, moving on from the kind of clear uh, health benefits, you've got some kind of other things that people will be interested in, such as the effects of caffeine on cognition. So, uh, let's get on to that. So something that I guess loads of people use this for, whether it's for professional or just employment or it's students for studying, is uh, the effectively sort of performance enhancing effects on your cognition. Uh, in addition to exercise performance, caffeine has also been studied for its contribution to athletes of all types who are routinely required to undergo periods of sustained cognitive function and vigilance during their sporting requirements. It's also been tested kind of in the military where often people can be sleep deprived and then 
at the drop of a dime need to go into a combat ready state. So a 2016 a review concluded that caffeine in doses from 32 milligrams to 300 milligrams for an individual who weighs 75 kilos enhance uh, specific aspects of cognition, uh, cognitive performance such as attention, vigilance and reaction time and it also improved mood. Uh, Spirit also concluded that uh, lower doses of caffeine, approximately 200 milligrams, improved cognitive process associated with exercise, including vigilance, alertness, and mood. Uh, Hongevert et al. studied 24 well-trained cyclists that were randomized to three groups. Uh, group 1 consumed a bar containing 45 uh, grams of uh, carbohydrate and 100 milligrams of caffeine. Uh, group 2 an, an isocaloric non-caffeinated performance bar uh, and group three who received a placebo beverage basically a non-caloric flavored water immediately before performing a two and a half hour ride followed by a time to exhaustion uh, time trial they found that the caffeine in a carbohydrate containing performance bar significantly improved both endurance performance uh, and complex cogni cognitive ability during and after exercise. Other studies have shown improvements in problem solving and reasoning as well. All very key things for anyone, even in a non-performance environment, directly to physical performance. It can just be interviews, it can be exams, it can be uh, anything where even just general learning this can be a key tool that can be used to uh, peak your performance uh, this is where caffeine clearly can have the effect on more than just you know physical performance as i've said um, so this is something where some clarity so a lot of what i've already said is more to show that caffeine doesn't necessarily have a negative impact on health and then here's some kind of insight onto the effects past just the anecdotal stuff of you go you know i feel more alert when i have caffeine well here's some kind of evidence to go with it and why it could be happening now there are two main areas that cropped up that had a reasonable body of uh, research going around them and kind of guidelines around caffeine and where it can be detrimental to human health and they were the two key ones were coffee and pregnancy and then coffee's effect on sleep so we'll start with pregnancy as the first the main uh, so there is evidence for harmful associations of coffee consumptions with different outcomes related to pregnancy high versus low consumption has been associated with a higher risk of low birth weight by 31 percent uh, pre pregnancy loss by 46 percent and first trimester uh, preterm birth by 22% and a second trimester uh, preterm birth by 12. Uh, there is also consistency in association with between high versus low coffee consumption in pregnancy and a higher risk of childhood uh, leukemia by 57% and a any versus no consumption by 44%. Um, now this isn't intended to this is sorry this is uh, intended to inform or scare people. Uh, still, for me personally, I think the numbers are significant enough that considering pregnancy is a temporary thing, it's probably worth eliminating it from your diet for that sort of period of time. Now, 
it may be true or false that this is the case that it is going to cause any of these things and they're all just risk factors so you can just like you have people who smoke and never have a clear negative health outcome it's i would say better to err on the safer side of things uh, now on to caffeine's effect on sleep. So the impacts of caffeine on sleep are widely studied. Sleep is an essential component of physiological and uh, psychological recovery from and preparation for high intensity training in athletes and learning of new skills for people in general. Uh, chronic to mild, chronic mild to moderate sleep deprivation in athletes has in some cases been attributed attributed. Uh, to caffeine intake and may result in negative or uh, altered impacts of glucose metabolism, uh, neuroendocrine function, appetite, food intake and protein synthesis as well as attention, learning and memory. These factors can all influence an athlete's uh, nutritional, metabolic and endocrine status negatively and hence potentially affect energy levels, muscle repair, uh, immunity, body composition, memory and learning and result in uh, diminished athletic performance. Now for people in endurance sports that is not uh, particularly technical learning may be a bit of an afterthought but in team sports where new drills, skills and uh, set plays are being learned all the time learning is a critical part of professional athletes game and should not be short changed. Um, now although these are specific to uh, athletes really all people um, are going to uh, you know need sleep is critical in general for long-term health and has been shown to have short changing it or just reducing it and having chronically poor sleep has been shown to cause increases in every illness and ailment under the sun um, objective sleep measures using uh, actiography actia, actigraphy actigraphy or uh, carried out in laboratories conditions with EEGs have shown that caffeine negatively impacts several aspects of sleep quality such as sleep latency which is the time it takes you to fall asleep uh, WASO which is wake time after sleep onset uh, sleep efficiency and duration uh, sleep efficiency a kind of good way of doing it is like it usually decreases as you age but it's effectively there's sort of a period where you're not actually asleep even though obviously you're not uh, like you will not you're not cognizant during it you're not aware that it's happened but it's effectively the time it takes the the useful product of your sleep how much time while you're asleep is it actually in various um, key sleep uh, stages uh, studies in athletes have also shown that adverse effects on sleep quality and markers of for exercise recovery after a variety of doses of caffeine ingestion Although caffeine is associated with sleep disturbances, caffeine has also been shown to improve vigilance and reaction time and improve physical performance after sleep deprivation. This may be beneficial for you know athletes or individuals who are going to have jet lag. So say you're maybe going for a business meeting in another country that is going to result in jet lag, then obviously caffeine has been shown to uh, drastically improve cognition and your affect like your ability to function really at a high level while sleep deprived but it can itself lead to that sleep deprivation if used chronically at the incorrect times so 
Even though caffeine ingestion may hinder sleep quality, the time of day which caffeine is ingested will likely determine uh, the incidence of these negative effects. So this doesn't mean you have to drop caffeine altogether uh, if you want to have a good night's sleep. But, for example, in one study that included a sample size of 13 participants, ingestion of caffeine in the morning hours negatively affected sleep only in one participant, likely someone whose half-life of caffeine was exceptionally long or with a high sensitivity to caffeine. However, ingestion of caffeine in the late afternoon, something like uh, 6 o'clock, resulted in insomnia effects among 6 participants, so almost half the sample size. These results are likely explained by half-life of caffeine, which is generally around 4-6 to six hours, even though it varies between individuals. Now, the easiest way to look at it is, <clears throat> say... Now, it's obviously going to vary from individual to individual, but let's just say 60 milligrams of caffeine in the blood is needed to cause insomnia. Now, if you have um, 120 milligrams of caffeine at 8 or 9 a.m. and the half-life is 6 hours, well, 6 hours from uh, 9 o'clock, or let's just say it's 2, uh, probably got that completely wrong, but it's now 60 milligrams and then you add 6 on that, 8 o'clock, you're now at 30 milligrams, so by the time you go to bed at 10, you've probably got 28, 27 milligrams in you, whereas if you had it at 6, you're still going to have over that 60 milligram threshold if you have 120 milligram coffee uh, by the time you actually go to bed, and obviously there's a time for it to peak in the blood, so you could have as high as 70 milligrams still in your system, which then, say the threshold is 60 milligrams for you as an individual. There you have it. Now, the outside of using any kind of objective sleep methods, I think the, simply the best way is to really cut out caffeine. If you are a poor sleeper, first cut out caffeine completely if you can, um, and then go to a model where you are sleeping and um, a reasonable amount such as eight hours a night see how you feel out of after that and then go back to your coffee consumption later in the day and you will see the effects and then you can yourself have a measure at which you can dial back when and how much caffeine you're having at different parts of the day and discover where maybe for you you can have coffee at lunchtime and still feel as rested the next day but then you notice suddenly, ah, oh, okay, if I'm having it at 2pm, it drops off a cliff, I struggle to get to sleep, my mind's racing. and So people often, because it's habitual and they don't necessarily know what it actually feels like necessarily to be fully rested, um, it's good to kind of self-experiment rather than just saying, ah, oh, I'm someone who can drink coffee at 9pm. You may be able to get to sleep. Like I myself have in the past been able to have... Uh, an espresso at 7pm and go to bed but clearly the quality of that sleep was probably poor so rather than leaving it to anecdote and just assuming that because you've done it in the past it's correct and then when it's too late you didn't know that's what it was give it a try give out either cutting it out or simply having one a day or two a day before lunch and then seeing how it affects your sleep later on how quickly you fall asleep and so on and so forth so to summarize all of this simply a lot of this is observational um, there are clearly key studies in athletes to show the kind of cogn cognitive benefits the effects on sleep um, but the health positive out health outcomes seem to all come from mainly observational data but simply there doesn't seem to be other than for 
pregnant women, there doesn't seem to be any reason why having a couple cups of coffee per day up until lunchtime will have any uh, negative or serious negative outcomes. Obviously, there may be individuals who do. And if you do think you're suffering from it, either cut it out or go and see your doctor, especially if, again, you are currently pregnant. Talk to your doctor first before continuing or increasing your caffeine consumption so thank you for listening to today's episode if you want more content like this there are plenty of previous episodes to check out but before you do why not follow the podcast and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts from or even better share it with a friend for comments feedback or if you would like to suggest a topic for future episodes i can be contacted at the vo2lounge at gmail.com and with that i will see you in the next one